Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I'm going to talk about one of my favorite topics, freedom of speech and freedom of opinion and open debate. As a guest, I have Jonathan Zimmerman. Jonathan teaches education and history at the University of Pennsylvania, a former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher. Zimmerman is the co-author with cartoonist Signe Wilkinson of Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. He has also written books about sex education, history instruction in schools, and the Little Red Schoolhouse. In American memory, Zimmerman is a frequent open contributor to the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and other popular newspapers and magazines. Welcome on the podcast. Let me ask you a question. What do you think should be the purpose of education? Uh, well, first of all, let me just say I love your hat, and you can get away <laughs> with it. If I wore that hat, it would look ridiculous, but for you, it works. Uh, it's no fair, actually. I think the purpose of education is to expose us to different worlds to expose us to things that aren't us. All of us live in bubbles in a sense because all of us are defined by our experiences and we're limited in that way. We always will be. But to me, the purpose of education is to fight those limits. I understand what the limits are. We're all limited as human beings. And I think what education should do is, as best as it can, try to transcend those limits by exposing us to things outside of our experience, our culture, our way of life. Well, now you talk about the creative element, the dangerous element for the system because they challenge the norm. They ask questions instead of giving answers. But my experience has been, and I don't know if it's been your experience, that those people who are creative ask questions that oftentimes they have a very difficulty in education because it's not being stimulated. Oh, I didn't say education was fulfilling the role that I just described. You, You asked me what I thought it should be, not what it was. And obviously, as in all human endeavors, there's a massive disconnect between those two things. And I'll give you a good example. In the United States, we have some good numbers showing that, as you might have read, we've become absurdly polarized. So when you surveyed Americans 40 years ago and you asked them questions like, have you had a conversation with somebody of a different political party? Do you have a neighbor of somebody of a different political party? Have you dated somebody of a different political party? It's, it's a straight line down. That is, all those things were much more common 40 years ago. But here's the most depressing fact that I think cuts to your point. The more education, the more formal education you have, the less likely you are to report having conversations with people of different political backgrounds. In other words, education is doing precisely the opposite of what I want it to do, right? If education is supposed to expose you to things that aren't you, then the more education you have, the more conversations you should be reporting, right? With people who are different from you. It has the opposite effect, at least in the United States. Do you know why higher educated people are exposed even less to other perspectives or ideologies? I I think there are many reasons for that. I think, frankly, just in our country, higher education has just become part of the political sorting mechanism. I mean, I know that re-asked the question. But I also think it's fair to say that some parts of higher education do indoctrinate people into certain ways of seeing and being. There's no question about that. They alter people's perceptions of the world. And look, there's not, obviously you would want education in some ways to alter your perception of the world, but what you wouldn't want it to do, and what I think it's done is often cut you off from parts of the world that you should be exposed to. 
Yeah, and the education system, it was partly created in a Prussian system of factory workers and obedient people who just follow the rules. But when I look now at the education system and I see the opportunities of expression, exploring, and then that tight-knit structure of education, it, it just seems outdated to that world of possibilities out there. Well, yes and no. I mean, now we're getting into very complicated terrain, right? One could cite lots of evidence flip that goes directly against what you say. Mm. I mean, think of what's happened, say, to the liberal arts curriculum. Again, I can't speak to other countries. I can just tell you mm -hmm. about the United States. If you go back 100 years, the curriculum was very set. Everybody had to read the same thing, often, indeed, the very same readings. Quite the contrary now. It's the Wild West, as we say. And the curriculum is more like a Chinese menu, like choose one from, you know, group A, one from group A. So, you know, there are some of us actually that think that, frankly, the curriculum should be more integrative and a little bit more directive than it is. Because education no longer gives us a kind of common vocabulary or even common set of ideas to analyze. I had a talk with Professor Robert Garland about the wisdom of the uh, Greeks on society, and he always goes back to the classics. He started referring to the all the classic books, you know, the Iliad, Shakespeare, etc. And I had a worrisome conversation with him because they seem to look at it through an identity politic lens. So when you go to the classics and they're just white or the whole bibliography doesn't have enough women or not enough black people, they just erase the value of that essential piece of some, Literature. Some I mean, th this is an issue. It's been an issue in classics in the United States. But I should also say that there's a debate around this. So the very famous classicist at Princeton, who's himself African-American, who's made this argument. But I think what's, what's salutary, frankly, I'm glad he made the argument because it's created an interesting debate. And there's been lots of pushback. And the pushback, which I've been a part of, generally goes like this. Look, if you want to fight racism, you actually need Socrates. Mm -hmm. Because Socrates told us to question everything including a lot of the racist things we've been... So there's absolutely nothing, in my view, inherently racist about this, especially because the Athenians had totally different ideas about human beings and had no idea of race, at least the way we understand it. But it's beyond that, right? I think what the classics should help us do is critique everything, including critiques of the classics themselves. This is the thing that I, that often people don't go deep enough, right? If you go to like Foucault and postmodernism, it's like, let destroy the narratives that are just the way for certain people, identities to get power. But then I go one level deeper. If you look at it as a method, as a principle of culture Marxism, what if your way in postmodernism to look at where power is and then destroy it is a way in itself to get power. And again, what some if a way to attack racism in itself becomes something racist? Right. I mean, for some people, it may be, right? And I think that certain parts of the post-structural critique are brilliant and necessary. It's just to your point, we don't apply it enough to post-structuralism itself. You know, Foucault is a genius, right? And what you should do is you should apply Foucault's methods to Foucault. That's what I'm doing. I'm right. reading culture Marxism and I'm thinking like we should give voice to the non-dominant perspectives because else non-dominant perspectives can flourish. But when I then see some in the media, this identity politics, a certain kind flourishing, I'm like, let's use culture Marxism to again, now let those non-dominant perspectives, which are completely different than 57 years ago, let's make sure that they have enough voice. So for me, it's it, yes. It's a pendulum. Yes, yes. And, and I have actually another objection. That, again, this is very America-specific, but one of my objections to that philosophy is that, you know, 
it instructs us to find power everywhere and look at power relationships everywhere, you know, power on the shop floor and power in the bedroom, you know, and power in the office place. And that's all fine and good. But what I find in the United States context is often people spouting that philosophy. They don't know very much about Congress or the presidency. And I'm like, excuse me, like, don't they have power? Like, doesn't Congress make laws and the president, you know, signs and executes those laws? Like, that's power, man. But just because of the way that politics, I think, has affected the curriculum, it's like we're looking for power in all these other places. That's fine. But political history, as I understand it, gets radically neglected. Uh, even though, of course, those institutions I described wield real and sometimes awful power. And sometimes this polarization is being used by power higher up to keep people divided, occupied, polarized, you know, and people just look at eye level or down, but they don't look up like who is this polarization actually serving? Uh, yes, I think that's true. I mean, at, at, as a rule, I'm not particularly friendly to arguments like that because I generally feel like people are not putty in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg. You know, people make their own decisions. Obviously, they get information from different places. Some of that information is better and worse than others, more accurate, more inaccurate. That I accept. But I generally feel that my students and everybody else, my fellow citizens, you know, they're reasoning creatures. They don't always get it right. But I generally try to analyze what they're saying and whether I agree with it and leave the motivations and the sources to God. I don't buy the arguments that say, hey, you, you over there, you're in the captivity of some awful other force that somehow I've been able to see through because I'm just so much smarter than you, right? You're caught in the jaws of this terrible thing that you can't even see. But I have so many degrees and I've read so many books that I can see it. I don't go in for that. Yeah, one thing that I have sometimes difficulty with is that, I mean, intention matters, context matters. Sometimes now you can say a wrong thing or you can adapt an opinion and then it's being revised and it's not being put in the right context or intention. And then you can have character assassination or you can have one thing out of context. Maybe as a professor, I talked to some lecturers and there's one thing they said that's wrong. And then, you know, that it's get blown, blown up and they yes. have to apologize for it. Yes, this has happened to all of us, you know, and, and look, this gets us into a different territory that I think something that is fundamentally new. I do think that the social media environment has introduced new factors that never existed before, right? There's always been canceling. There's no question about that. And there have always been people who have been unfairly, I think, demonized for some statement that they've made, uh, which maybe has been taken out of context. But it's very different when you're multiplying that by 100,000 or maybe by 10 million. Is and that partly because scary. with social media, everybody is being given a voice and an opinion? Was it more informed in the past when more informed people or between bracket experts got the main stage? Yes, look, uh, and they didn't always get it right. I mean, let's remember that, you know, sciences like eugenics were brought to you by the great experts of the day. And, you know, the Third Reich was championed by Nazi doctors, right, who were the most educated and the most cultured members of their society. So, I believe in a healthy skepticism about expertise, but there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism. And I think that's a distinction that we're really losing. You know, think of in the United States context, how much vilification a figure like Anthony Fauci has received. This would never have happened in early generations, right? Jonas Salk was the, the, the Anthony Fauci of polio. And obviously, there were people that didn't like Jonas Salk, but he wasn't vilified by millions of people. And what you see is, you know, you see an enormous cynicism. Look, Anthony Fauci is not God, 
Anthony Fauci is a fallible human being, just like you and me. But unlike you and me, Anthony Fauci has spent 55 years teaching himself about immunology. And if you listen to his critics, Anthony Fauci is simply a political actor, right? His opinion is not worth anything more than yours or mine. And and science, just like Clausewitz said said about war, science is just politics by any other means. So obviously, he dresses up his claims in all this scientific rhetoric, but he's just a political actor like you and me trying to get his way. His voice and his claims have no independent authority. That is hugely cynical. That's different from being skeptical and saying, now, wait a second, Dr. Fauci, how about what you said about masks a year ago? Why doesn't that apply now? That's totally legit, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the knee-jerk and full-blown rejection of scientific, uh, scientific expertise. That's what we're looking at right now, and it is terrifying. I had a conversation about it yesterday. I, I think we're close to the end of belief in science. I, I think hope it's, you're wrong. It's, it's become so dogmatic sometimes and sometimes a bit so so harsh and extreme that I think we didn't realize that even science has a kind of belief element in it. And I think it's a lot on the pressure right now. Right. Of course it does. But Flip, I would say that those beliefs have some really good grounding, right? It, they're not just beliefs like, oh, I believe in God, right? Or I believe in America. It's very different. I mean, you know, the example I always give is the germ theory. The germ theory is not intuitive, and this is how I learned it. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal in the 1980s, and I was in a part of Nepal that was very remote. It was a three-day walk from vehicular traffic. Most people there had never seen a non-Nepali. And so I was very weird. And one of the many weird things I did was I put iodine in my water, Mm -hmm. and everyone would gather around and watch this. And they would say, John, sir, why are you putting that brown stuff in your water? And I'd say, well, listen, there are these tiny little animals in the water. And if they get in your gut, they're going to give you the runs. But this medicine kills the animals. And they'd hold up the water and they'd say, wait, where? Wait, where are the animals? I'm like, well, see, they're so small that you can't see them except with this very special machine. And they'd say, have you ever seen them? I'd say, no. I'd say, so how do you know they're there? And this is your question about belief. Well, here's how I know they're there. I'm a historian, okay? And... In Little Italy, which is in lower Manhattan and was the most densely crowded part of Manhattan in the 1880s and 1890s, the infant mortality rate was 33%. In Nepal, when I was there in the Peace Corps in the 80s, it was one out of four. So it was still horrible, but not as bad in Little Italy. And the reason was exactly the same. Waterborne illness, right? The fecal oral route. And the reason it went down in Little Italy is we created boards of health. Now, to your point, who was on the board of health? Not you or me right? The people on the board of health were chemists, right? They were people that had studied this weird thing that Pasteur came up with called the germ theory. And the point is, it worked. That's why so many more people lived. And this just seems like, you know, to your point, a history that a lot of people are either forgetting or just willfully ignoring. Science is not religion, and it doesn't know everything. But it has helped us preserve hundreds of millions, possibly billions of lives. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact. True. There are some frameworks that are useful. Isn't the danger that to say the science has settled or I am the Vatican in the past with religion and this is the essential doctrine that makes it a bit dangerous? Anytime in in science that you say like it's settled, it's clear. Yes. Yes. Well, that's bad science. Right? Because good science has never settled. 
There is no such thing as settled science. And Fauci is a good example, right? I mean, Fauci has backtracked on some of the things he said, and he's explained why, right? He explained that he got new data. Like, Flip, there's a reason they call it the novel coronavirus, right? Like, it is new. And almost by definition, I would think, our scientific knowledge of it is going to be changing precisely because it's so novel. And what I think is so sad, to go back to the Fauci example, is the changes in what he's said are being used against him as if it's bad science. But that, to your point, is the hallmark of good science. It changes as the data changes, as we gather more knowledge. Isn't it problematic that I won't say it on my podcast, you have something that starts with the IV and it ends with mectin. If that yes. would be effective in studies and it seems like, oh, it seems to have an effect, isn't it extreme that the people who said in the past, like it works, they removed, they like being punished, held responsible for that opinion in the past. And other people who then, you know, said it was bad and it seems good right now, shouldn't they also in a way be able to be critiqued or held responsible? Because sometimes it seems that one side ideologically, scientifically is being ostracized. And some of that knowledge could maybe be true, could be nuanced, but they have to bear the consequences of being removed and shut down completely. Well, look, I don't think anybody who's advocating Vectin has been, quote, shut down completely. I mean, this gets to the free speech point flip. Mm -hmm. I think that people that want to advertise the great alleged virtues of Vectin should be allowed to do so. And I think people who want to say that that's crazy, unscientific crap should be allowed to do so as well. And frankly, that's what I think is happening. You know, I think the scientific evidence for Vectin is extremely thin as a treatment for this. Obviously, there are people who swear by it, including Joe Rogan. I feel like they have the right to swear by it. And other people have the right to say that that's bullshit. One thing you said before is that everything becomes increasingly politicized or nowadays. That's also what I feel, that science, pharma, spokespeople, because of so many money, power, influence, control being made by those decisions in the back door and with now big companies, big forum, big media, more and more money, more and more influence, more and more influence on perception. I feel that I'm not saying that they make the wrong decisions, but that politicization, that using it in a way to make people have certain decisions or get more money, I feel, see a lot of elements in pharma, media, and these things being politicized, just as you say, like, you know, you see Fauci, but it's also politicized of what he's a spokesman for. Haven't you seen the last 20, 30, 40 years, like more and more money to big companies who just put a lot of pressure to essential people and institutions? Well, sure. But again, I think we've got to be very careful here about generalizing across different cases, right? Are there cases in which big pharma, like big tobacco, has twisted the truth to line its pockets? Of course. I mean, look at the opioid story and the Sackler yeah. family. The answer is yes. But I think it's the worst kind of fallacy to extrapolate from that and imagine that, say, I don't know, the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine is the product of a similar kind of perfidy. That's just lazy thinking to me. There's no therefore. You know what I mean? Like the Sackler family, like, exerted this ridiculous and corrupt influence on the FDA, and they knew that opiates were addictive, and they disguised that. That's all true. Therefore, therefore, there's something wrong with the Pfizer vaccine. Flip, there is no therefore. There is no therefore, right? Every case is different, and it is cynical in the extreme to go from one to the other. 
it's funny because you have the exact opposite perspective when it comes to this, but that is just interesting that I talk with someone who is like a, an advocate of freedom of speech. I do see that some things are being politicized and I see more and money, power and influence being made, not by the citizens, not by nations, but I see big corporations having a huge influence in people, their perception, and they can use it to steer it one way or another way. You have these little documentaries, The Social Dilemma, or how they let people vote for Trump with Cambridge Analytica, etc. But you do see that a lot of companies, they have more control than a nation, individual citizens. And that just worries me how those Capitalistic companies can have a huge influence in the perception of people, votes of people, belief of certain people, well, despite look, look, where they are on the spectrum, right? Right. Look, I mean, you know, for the past 150 years in Western democracies, there's been there's been a long-standing effort to rein in the power of big capital. That effort has taken different forms in different places. But, you know, the, the entire progressive movement in the United States with a capital P, like, you know, Roosevelt Wilson Taft was built on this premise. The idea was standard oil yeah. has too much power and the Carnegies have too much power and we have to try to rein it in. And obviously there are all kinds of similar examples in Western Europe as well. And it seems to me this is an ongoing dilemma. And since you mentioned free speech, like I think people should raise their voices against corporations that they think have too much power, either power over the, you know, the, the political discourse or power over, you know, you name it, the environment right? Pollution and climate change, even the labor market. Uh, I, I see an increasing narrow bandwidth of acceptable opinion that most people voice their opinion online on social media. And there seems to be a, a bias, what you're able to say and not say. And those, those tentacles or grip are getting smaller and smaller. And that worries me, not for people who agree yeah. with me, just as the principle for open dialogue and exchanges yeah. of perspectives. Of course, I agree with you there too. But I think we also have to be very careful. I mean, Flip, look at what you and I are doing this morning. I know it's the afternoon for you, <laughs> right? Nobody, there's no great, terrible black hand that's you know going to come in and muzzle either of us. Nobody's going to come in the night for me and my family, right? I do think in certain cultures and in certain institutions, there has been a narrowing of acceptable opinion. I think you're right about that. But we also have to be very careful about the words we use to describe this. You know, there are plenty of countries in the world where I could be taken to jail for the things I write and say. I don't live in one of them, right? I'm a newspaper columnist. I write a column every week. Most of my columns are critical in some way of somebody who has power in the United States. And even though my inbox is full of terrible and sometimes Jew-hating things that citizens have written, nobody from the state has threatened me. But there are Nobody's people be, being removed from Facebook from just using certain words or having an opinion or sharing an article. I've seen plenty of stuff like they share even an article from the CDC or an official source. And then, or, or I make a video where people are critical about the stuff that starts with a V. And I can't even put it on YouTube because it's being censured or I got to strike that way. So and, and look, I, I'm concerned about this. And this is a huge issue in the United States because Facebook, of course, is a private company, right? Facebook is not the government. And I'm troubled by the idea of Facebook taking down things that it thinks are too hateful for others to see. And, you know, a really good example that I keep coming back to is the whole question of the Wuhan lab and whether the virus was hatched in the lab. So Facebook took down claims to that extent. 
you know, way last March because allegedly they were anti-Asian, anti-hateful. And now Joe Biden has a commission to study if that happened. Yes. Now, let me be really clear for your listeners, I'm not saying it happened. And my reading of the bulk of the evidence is I still think it's unlikely, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't want to cut off debate about that or investigation about that on the grounds that it's hateful. And now, fortunately, Facebook isn't either, as I understand it. You know, Facebook has gone back on that. But, you know, to your point about corporate power, I don't want Mark Zuckerberg making a decision about whether you can read about the Wuhan lab charge. I'd like you to read about the Wuhan lab charge and decide it on your own. Yeah, me too. I had people from alternative social media platforms about section. I don't know, you know, the stuff about the exception for like Facebook. But I believe these companies play a role in the public arena and they have so much impact that I think they should uphold certain human laws and maybe freedom of speech with certain limits, we will talk about it later, should apply to them because there's such a huge part of people that lives in their perception. I think just to excuse they're a private company, they can do whatever they want. I personally don't feel that that's valid for what the company is. Or well, what they well do. look, there, there are all kinds of restrictions on private companies, right? I, they don't always abide by them, but private companies can't dump toxic refuse into a lake. Mm -hmm. They do sometimes, right? But yes. it is against the law. So it, it's specious to say that the public can't exert any regulation on private companies. I think the interesting question is, what should the regulation be? Mm -hmm. So let's go into that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a really hard one. And I'm not, just like I'm not comfortable with Mark Zuckerberg cutting off discussion of the Wuhan lab, I'm not comfortable with Congress or the president telling Mark Zuckerberg what he can post on Facebook. To me, those in some ways are species of the same problem. And I'm a thousand flowers bloom guy. You know, if there's terrible shit on Facebook, which there is, raise your voice against it. Like flip, that's a form of free speech in its own right. Speech challenging hate speech is free speech. It's a mm -hmm. form of free speech. The people that want to cut off hate speech, they always say we have too much free, we have too much free speech. You can't use free speech to justify hate speech. Well, I'm not saying you can justify it because some of the hate speech is unjustifiable. The question is how to fight it. All right. And my answer is always with more speech. Just like I don't want, I don't want Mark Zuckerberg deciding this. I don't want Joe Biden deciding it either. I have the same thing. Like I sometimes say, the most hateful thing you can do with speech is silencing it. And why is that? And and maybe you can elaborate what your perspective is. I think speaking your truth is a negotiation with the world, so you can give feedback, you can adapt, you can learn. It also brings up less resentment because you can bounce it off from people. So it actually sometimes doesn't in, incite violence. It just incites dialogue, dialogue, brings it out in the open arena, in the arena, see different perspectives. And it's a peaceful way mostly to solve difficulties or raise awareness. So that is why I'm such a strong advocate of freedom of speech. I actually think it helps reduce violence. I, I agree. But the problem is we're so embittered and we're so polarized and we're so cynical about each other that we don't believe that we can engage in the process that you just described. See, that's the heart of the matter, I think. It's really not about free speech. I think it's about our faith in each other. And most of all, our ability to converse with each other. And I think this is where the education piece comes in, right? So you have to learn how to be exposed to other things. You asked me about the purpose of education at the very beginning. It's not natural. 
People don't come out of the womb saying, you know, Flip, I'm going to listen to everything you say. And even if I disagree, I mm-hmm. won't kill you. Mm-hmm. That's not natural. And if the evolutionary psychologists are correct, it may be unnatural, maybe much more natural just to hate on you. And that's where the education piece comes in. We have to learn to conduct the kind of dialogue that you're describing because we've forgotten how to do it. I mean, just think of what young people are exposed to in social media, even cable TV. I mean, sometimes Susan, my wife and I will be watching on TV and they'll say, we're going to have a debate about whatever, you know, healthcare or the environment, whatever it might be. And then you just see these four talking heads just ranting at each other. Yeah. And we look at each other and we say, that wasn't a debate. There was no exchange. It was just sequential rants. And imagine somebody growing up in that media environment. That's what they think politics is. Now, that's scary, you know, and it seems the only way that we interrupt that is through education. I don't know of any other. It's, the answer is not going to come from social media itself. We have to learn different ways of acting and different ways of exchanging. Also on a psychological level, I feel that not being able to speak your opinion, not not feeling listened to, not feeling your opinion matters, it also hurts your self-image. It it breeds resentment if you just can't speak your thing and express yourself or what you say is wrong. Right. It is. But again, you know, I think that we need also to be careful about these can and can'ts, right? Again, nobody's monitoring us right now, so far as I know. I mean, they may be, right? (laughs) And I'm not afraid of them. Right. But again, not everyone can say that. Right. And I think we really need to distinguish between societies where the political regime allows you to speak and societies where it does not. So, Flip, I even I have students from the People's Republic of China who have told me that they're afraid to engage in certain discussions in my own classroom in the USA because they don't know who from the PRC is watching or listening. All right. So that's not, we're not talking about like social media here, informal pressures, right? We're talking about a regime that's put a million people in concentration camps. Like they don't fuck around there. We got to be really careful here to draw some elemental distinctions. I share your concerns about free speech. Mm -hmm. I understand that it's been limited by, you know, social media and some of the other cultural constraints we've talked about. But I am not a Uyghur in a concentration camp, all right? And that's happening right now. There are state agents, right, all over the world who are harassing, jailing, torturing, and killing people because of what they say. That's the biggest danger to free speech. Everything else comes second. Another thing also is that I think should be about mutual responsibility. So when you sit on the table, I mean, that's my opinion, you want to listen to the other person and see, you know, maybe their challenges and what you can do about it. And then the other way they can listen to you and what they could do about it. And you can focus on mutual responsibility. But now sometimes I see these people, you know, I'm white and Western. So I just, I should be lectured, sit down and it's all my fault. And it's like, how can we make a constructive dialogue, mutual responsibility, but to just sit there and like, your opinion doesn't matter. You have the dominant narrative. So you're going to shut up and your meeting doesn't matter. And you have to give me what I want. That doesn't seem a constructive, it, polite discourse. But, but my point here, Flip, I agree with everything you just said, but you are raising your voice against that. Are you not? 
right now. Yeah, partly right, right now. Yeah, but 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 would right? you would you would you sit down in a talk when you just basically are lectured because you're a white Jew and you're privileged and you're a professor and you have enough money and you just have to listen because it's all your fault? I would I would love. Yeah, I, I've I've heard that and I've challenged that. Right. Which is itself a form of free speech. Right. So, yes, I mean, there are these constraints and there are people that have tried to muzzle me in different ways. And what I've done is I've raised my voice against that. Right. That's how I think it's supposed to work. And like, you know, again, you know, there are different people, especially in university contexts, who want these hate speech rules and they want to talk about trigger warnings and they want to talk about microaggressions and all this stuff. They can talk about that. I mean, that's their free speech. Right. What they can't do is prevent me from critiquing all of that, which I have. I know professors who got fired or they had to take time off. I actually had a, uh, a lecturer on my podcast who was critical towards Corona. And part of what he said actually was proven wrong. And he got fired by his university. So I literally know people who would speak a certain opinion, have an open debate, but they put their reputation on the line by doing it. Yes. That. And, and look, I should emphasize you know, and I should have from the very beginning that I come to this with an extraordinary privilege because I have tenure. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, Flip, in my society, what I'd have to do to get fired, I can't even say on this podcast. <laughs> like, that's how <laughs> you bad could it is. Say. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I have the ultimate sinecure and, and I do know how rare that is. It's an incredible gift and not everybody has that. Most people don't have that. And what for people who don't have tenure? Isn't that very shaky ground, right? Not very. Walk. And, 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 you know, in the U.S. context in higher education, that's my real fear. So there's a lot of survey literature showing that professors, especially junior professors, aren't saying what they think precisely because they're afraid that they won't get tenure. And that's poisonous, you know? And I think that's really what we have to fight. Again, this isn't a matter of getting jailed or tortured, but it is a matter of losing your job and most upsettingly to me, there are lots of people that tell surveyors that they're not expressing what they actually think and believe. And why is that a problem? That's a problem because it interferes with the process of knowledge, right? That's our system for generating knowledge. Like there's no God, there's no mosaic tablet that tells us what's true. The way we determine what's, what's true is through dialogue and debate. And if we're biting our tongues, we can't do that. So that's an enormous danger. Is that anything that you think a person couldn't say to you and that should not be allowed and people should immediately bear the consequences? Do you have any kind of example what the limit is of well, freedom of well, speech? Well, I mean, I guess if, look, all rights are limited. They are, right? I can't dial the White House and say, I'd like to shoot the president. Is that a limit on my free speech? I guess technically it is. To take a more obvious example, I can't say to a student, you know, gee, I really like the sweater you're wearing. If you wear it again on Thursday, I'll give you an A. Is that a limit on my speech? Sure. Right. But, you know, it's a limit, by the way, that I happily accede to. Right. Because, you know, all rights are limited. OK. The only question is, where should the limits be? Mm -hmm. All right. And I like the American system. And this is where I suppose I'm a patriot, because what the American system says, what the constitutional system says, is that if you want to limit somebody's speech, you have to show that there is an immediate and mm -hmm. obvious danger to that person. Immediate and obvious. So this is why, although I supported the impeachment of Trump both times, 
I was troubled by the first article of impeachment the second time, which was that he incited the January 6th riot. Mm -hmm. I would have voted to impeach Trump, by the way, after the riot, not because he incited it, because of what he did afterwards, which was nothing. Right. He's the president of the United States. His job is to protect the people's house. And he did not. To me, that's grounds for impeachment. But I was very troubled by the incitement thing, because you say you look at his speech at the Washington Monument. He's like, you've got to hold on to your country or you won't have a country anymore. Fine. Did, did he say, I want you to walk over down, down the mall to the Capitol, yeah. smash the windows, <laughs> defecate inside and kill a police officer? If he had said that, I would be OK with the incite to riot. He did not say that. And the people that say inside of the riot, I would say to them, how about the next time an unarmed black person is killed? There's a big Black Lives Matter protest and somebody burns a police car. And then we find an hour before a speaker had said, and the pigs are terrible people mm -hmm. off the pigs. Are you going to be OK with jailing that person for inciting to riot? My guess is you're not. Well, this is the so problem that I often have, that it's not like often principles. I mean, like when, when Black Lives Matter uh, gathered during COVID, it was a peaceful protest where they could gather because they stand up for BLM. And when local business owners were just gathering, oh, no, it's white nationalists. And he's like, it's one or the other. I'm not going to look at the yeah. color of the skin, but what is the principle here? I saw Madonna. I want to go to the White House and, and, and kill the president. It's something like that. It's like directly saying, I want to go to the White House and kill the president. Like she said it literally with the mic in front of... Uh, Washington building, I think. So. so look, there's a lot of inconsistency, right? Human beings, you know, we're inconsistent creatures, right? You know, it's very hard for us to abide by principles fairly and even handedly, you know, especially at moments like the one we live in. But again, we should at least struggle. We should strive to do that. So I, again, I yield to nobody in my loathing for Trump. I think he behaved in an unconscionable way during the riot itself. But I will not say the inside of the riot because I don't like where that goes. I don't like the implications for that for our, all of our freedom of speech. Do you know why, when you talk about progressives, I, you lived through the 60s and it was like open liberty, freedom of speech from the left? From the left, mostly progressive left. And now when you see the people who want to censor it the most, often are people on the left. So what happened with that spectrum left, right, if you still well, want to talk about it? Well, just one small correction. I agree with you about this dynamic, right? Obviously, the free speech movement in Berkeley in 1964, it was all people on the left, like, you know, Mario Savio. And obviously, there's been a switch. But I do think it's bipartisan, too. I mean, look at this new wave of laws in the United States to try to restrict what schools say about racism and critical race theory in the 1619 Project. Flip, that's all brought to you by Republicans, who, by the way, are like busily complaining about cancel culture at the same time. So I'm not discounting the problem. I'm just saying it is bipartisan. And if we're talking about the left-wing version of it, I think one thing that really changed starting in the 90s, was what I've called in, in one of my books, the psychologizing of politics. And what I mean by that is the framing of political claims in psychological terms. So if you say something, Flip, that I disagree with, I don't simply say I disagree with it, I think you're wrong for the following reasons. What I say is, you harmed me. You triggered me. Or I'm a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, well, it's saying the same thing, really, right? Because horrible people harm you. I injured you in some kind of existential way. And this is a cul-de-sac, right? If indeed, Flip, you were to say in the course of this conversation that something I said injured you, 
I would have essentially one thing to say in response. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, Mm -hmm. I'm not in this world to injure you. I have no interest in that. But the point is, I can't say anything more than that. I can't look into your soul and tell you what harm you've suffered. When I give this rap to my students, they often say, you're denying our feelings. And I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. no, the opposite. It's precisely the undeniability of your feelings that make them such an impossible venue for discussion, right? It's because I can't. Discussion requires a kind of denial. It's like, no, Flip, I think you're wrong for the following reasons. But if you say that you were microaggressed or triggered, I can't really say you're wrong, right? I can't deny your feelings. And that's why feelings are just a terrible venue for this discussion. They're not a venue at all, right? They're a cul-de-sac right? They're a limit. And I know in some ways this re-asked the question, sort of how did this arise? But I do think it's qualitatively different. And I, I can answer it in one sense. One place it came from, ironically and sadly, is from mental health awareness, which, by the way, I think is a terrific thing. When I grew up, we didn't know from that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's wonderful that there are both more mental health services and also less stigma around the subject. That's a terrific thing. But I think in politics, it had this unintended consequence. So it's like, please also understand, I'm not against psychology. My family and I have been great beneficiaries of psychology, right? It's just that I don't think psychology and politics play well together. And I also, for me, also being able to speak my truth, have arguments, it also made me resilient. The world sometimes is not a nice place or there's stuff that you don't like, but if you can communicate, learn how to deal with it, that's a huge yeah. assets to have to deal with that. Well, this, this too, I mean, I'm sure you've read Jonathan Haidt's work. I mean, this is yeah, the, the, mind the, the psychology of politics is that it's actually bad psychology. So leaving aside good and bad and right and wrong, just on its own terms, These psychological arguments don't work. This idea that it would actually be good, for example, for our minority students to insulate them from these microaggressions that they think are going to harm them. That doesn't work on psychological grounds because everything cognitive psychology has taught us boils down to if there's something that's scary or awful out there, you want to expose people to it slowly, gradually. You don't want to insulate them from it. That's not going to make them resilient. That's basically going to make them scared and weak. So even on its own terms, it actually doesn't work. There's no credible psychology behind most of these claims, but we just keep making them. Well, for me, it explains kind of, and I compare it like I have another uh, idea of uh, the crisis that's going on, but a part of me says like, yes, take care of people who are weak or vulnerable, but a part of this is like, what is the goal here? To never become sick again, to never die again. There's some part that you mm-hmm. want to learn how to deal, to never be offended again, to never feel triggered again. Then you stay in yeah. an infantile state in the womb, comfort womb, yes. but you never grow up. Yes. And this, I mean, you know, and again, I think there's some there's some good psychological research confirming everything you just said, right? This isn't actually good. These metaphors are not good for our young people because they become self-fulfilling prophecies, right? You know, we teach people actually a certain kind of offense and a certain kind of weakness. Look, if you went to your therapist and you sat down and you told your therapist about some problem and she said, you were injured, you were injured, you were injured. (laughs) Like you could sue your therapist, right? That's not good therapy, but that's kind of what we're providing right now, which is scary. 
Is it something that you witnessed as being a Jew? Maybe you got racist comments, you know, or anti-Semitism, etc. Why did you develop this stance? There was a lot of material to just say like, oh my God, you know, they hate us and it's all the fault of those people and those nationalists, etc. Yes, look, I mean, I could tell you because I'm a newspaper columnist, like I do, I think, have to face anti-Semitism in ways that a lot of other people don't. You know, because, well, of this medium we're talking about, right? I mean, people who I'm sure 99 out of 100 would never say this terrible anti-Semitic thing to me in person. They'll do it because they feel liberated to do it, I think, right? They can do it anonymously through fake email accounts. I know this can sound weird, but I take a certain amount of pleasure is the wrong word, but confidence in the fact yeah, that- Yeah, pride would also be a bit uh, well, too harsh. I, 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 it makes me pleased that they've been so stigmatized that they know they have to lie in order to do this, right? That tells you something important, right? In the era of Dreyfus, right? They could have just done it publicly. It's just said, who is this Jewish Zimmerman guy, right? Now they have to do it via subterfuge. That's progress, And I'm not trying to deny the problem. The problem's real. Like, there's a lot of Jew hating in our world. But the Jew haters have been stigmatized, right, in ways that for most of Jewish history, they weren't. So I take a certain sort of confidence in this, right? I'm not trying to deny the problem. But because I'm a historian, I also have to be aware of just how fortunate I am, right? This is like, I live in the greatest country in the world to be a Jewish person. I really do. And I believe that. That's not to say there aren't terrible Jew haters. There are. I encounter them almost every day. But you know what? They are pathetic losers, right? And I think they've been judged so by our society, which is why they have to use a fake email account. And then sometimes, you know, there is also, there's a certain sort of ignorance that is, I think, too easy sometimes to dismiss as anti-Semitism, but is really just ignorance. And I'd like to give you an example from my own experience. You know, I grew up in New York and Washington, so there were Jewish people everywhere. Yeah. You know, and I, I went to Columbia, and my brother, who went to law school there, he used to joke, he would say, there are three major world faiths at Columbia, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, yeah. right? So ironically, it wasn't until I joined the United States Peace Corps and went to Nepal that I met Americans who were like weird about Jews. This one guy said to me during training, again, these are all Americans, John, are you Jewish? Which again was hilarious because nobody ever asked me that. I just thought everyone knew, like, no, I'm Jehovah's Witness. Like, what do you think? So I'm like, yeah, yes. And I'm kind of wondering what's going to come next. And the guy says, you know, when I was in college, my sophomore year on my floor across the hall, there was a Jewish guy. I'm like, oh, really? You get Mo, Mo Rosenberg? Yeah, I know him, yeah. right? It's all part of this international conspiracy. <laughs> this one guy, yeah, of course. Yeah, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Henry Kissinger and the Queen of England are yeah, involved yeah. in some dark, you know, unspecified way. So, you know, I don't think that was really anti-Semitic in the way I would describe it. It was just kind of a form of ignorance. Here's another example. I was walking with a fellow volunteer in a very remote part of the country, and we pull into a tea shop. And if you've ever been to that part of the world, South Asia, you know they have very distinctive calendars, each one devoted to a Hindu god, mm. right? So you see Ganesh, who's the elephant, and that's January. And you, Shiva's February, and on and on. And then December, there's this like white guy who looks like Greg Ullman on a cross. And I'm looking at this, and I'm wondering if I can take a picture of it, because I just thought it was so magical. And I'm talking to this volunteer about it. And... The Nepali guy, the tea shop owner, he can see that we're talking about, he can't understand what we're saying. He says, 
he points to December. He said, hey, look, it's your God. And I said to him, Napoleon, I said, well, not exactly. No, we killed him. <laughs> yeah, well, I, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. I said in Napoleon, I said, you know how like Buddha was a, a Hindu, but then he made Buddhism? Well, this guy was Jewish like me. And then he made Christianity. And then the, the, the tea shop owner said, oh, so you're the guys who killed them. And I said, well, not exactly, but we got a lot of shit about that. And we sort of talked about it. And then I get back on the trail with this friend of mine, this American guy. And he says to me, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I always thought that the Jews killed Jesus. And again, my point here, Flip, is he didn't even know enough of the history to know that he probably shouldn't be saying that. The reason he shouldn't be saying that, of course, is the history, right? How much Jews suffered because of the deicide charge, right? But this guy, this American guy, he didn't know any of that. So I wasn't offended. I mean, I tried to explain it to him as best he could, but uh, as best I could. But in that instance, I think, again, that's a, that's a function of ignorance and not hatred. He didn't know the history of the hatred. Well, this right. is the thing, and uh, this thing, how it could be used. This will not, I mean, you will not be easily triggered, probably, but since you're like into history, this is also something I feel lacking sometimes about all the conflicts. Even when I would talk about the most controversial thing about the Third Reich and history, I also read about 1918. I read about the atrocities and the Eisenhower death camps or what happened in East Prussia. Does that mean I can do what they do? Absolutely not. I read about the Gulag Archipelago. I read about the rape of Nanking. So I see evil and context in a lot of situations. And even here in history, Sometimes we see only one side and one narrative, and I just like to see the context to understand it better. Yes. Well, look, I think that's what history's goal is, right? I mean, I think history's goal, again, is to widen our world, right? And look at how many different forms of human behavior there are, right? And try to examine them, again, in their own context, you know? But I think also there's a danger in jumping from one context to another. So, you know, those of us who are historians don't like it when people call something a Holocaust, mm-hmm. right? And when my students do that, whatever it is, say what's happening in, in Xinjiang mm-hmm. now, right, to the Uyghurs, mm-hmm. right? It's horrible. It's the worst human rights thing happening on Earth today. It's not the Holocaust. So, you know, I always say to my students, look, whatever you're describing, I'm sure it sucked. But don't call it the Holocaust. Well, this is something as a free speech advocate that I don't agree with. Either you're not able to deny any genocide, but for one genocide or just the Holocaust to... To, to not be able to, to talk about this, but other people could deny the Armenian genocide, etc. That is just a weird principle for me. Like, why, why would it only be that topic or genocide you can't talk about? Because I know plenty oh, no, of genocides no, 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 in the world. Clear. I'm not saying my students shouldn't be allowed to call what's happening in Xinjiang a Holocaust. I'm just saying that in exerting my own free speech, mm-hmm. I'll question that, right? They should they say whatever the hell they want. Right. I mean, nobody has censored my classroom. Right. But, you know, lynching is another good example. People will call something terrible that happened to lynching. And generally what I'll say is, dude, if you think that this other thing is a lynching, you just got to read more about lynching. Right. I mean, you know, I I know. But I read Ralph Waldo Emerson, and one of the things that he said is like the corruption of man starts with the corruption of language. So sometimes what I also see now is that the definitions of terms change. Some people say like black people can be racist. And I say, uh, that's a racist statement. No, no, no. The definition of racism has changed because now it's only, you know, non-privileged people who can say it's like, what? 
Yes. And look, again, what you're describing, again, is a set of speech acts. It depends on how you're defining things. And the only way we get closer to any sort of shared definition is by debating those different definitions. You know, so the question of even what racism is, is a hugely complicated one, you know, and I don't think anybody should be censored in their opinion of that, because that won't get us closer to an understanding. The problem I sometimes have is that sometimes you have this meme where people will say like, hey, who radicalized you? And then the other ear is like, you did. So I know most people who are white, you know, they are not racist at all. Like, you know, they have some biases, privilege, they said they're not racist at all. But sometimes all the bashing of white people and Western people, it silently breeds some resentment and less patience that sometimes the problem is enhanced by just focusing on it, that constantly hammering on it. That, that's sometimes what I feel, because maybe your experience is different, but most of our people, I have very little racist people in my network. Most people just, they are maybe privileged in a way, but they want to give people a, a chance based on their characters, based on their skills. But when you only focus on white Western males and you hear that constantly, it breeds some resentment sometimes after well, a while. Well, as far as the resentment goes, there's no question about that. I mean, I don't think that you can analyze Trumpism in any other term. Right. I mean, I think that not all of Trump's voters were white, by the way, but the vast majority were. And one of the things that he was very able, very successful in doing was mobilizing that kind of resentment and saying, you know, it's become so politically correct, you know, and, you know, you are somehow being oppressed. I don't I agree with you. I think that most people aren't racist, but I also think that most people aren't oppressed. I think that Trump convinced a lot of white people in America that they're an oppressed class. This is ridiculous, but it was successful. They were not an oppressed class. What he was able to do was to mobilize the resentment you're describing to make them think that somehow the United States is aligned against white people. Like, you know, I looked at Congress the other day. It's almost all white people, right? We've had 45 presidents except for Obama. They were all white people. White people have a pretty good gig in the United States. Like, they are not hurting. But I see a lot of movements being anti. So you could also say that the Black Lives Matter movements also focuses mostly on being anti-white instead of pro-something and the pro-black community that I feel sometimes it's even like, if you want to talk politically, like the Democrats being used as polarization, to get votes in the black community without permanently solving something. Because after George Floyd, man, so many people that are like, that's disgusting behavior. They wanted to act like stand up for the cause. And then again, it became an anti-polarization thing. While for me, it could have been a great moment to get together and make it about a bigger issue than being anti-something and feeding polarization. Right. Look, look, it could have been, right? And I agree that there was lots of misrepresentation in the wake of all that, you know? So... It is true that in the United States, every country is different, that African-Americans, after you control for everything else, are more likely to be harassed by police officers. They're more likely pulled over by police officers. They receive larger sentences for the same crime as white people. These are real things and these are racist things. However, it is not true that there has been a massive wave of police murders against unarmed black people. That is false. Right. And we should be able to say these two things at the same time. Right. Are there racial and racist problems in criminal justice in the United States? There absolutely are. hundred percent. Right. And there's a huge swath of evidence for that. But 
Has there been a huge wave of police officers just randomly murdering unarmed black people? No. In fact, you can count the number of times that happens on a few hands. Now, I'm not trying to deny that one time is too many. But the idea of, you know, during the Floyd protests, when people were out marching without masks, and sometimes they're interviewed, they say, why are you marching without a mask? And they say, well, I figure a cop is going to shoot me anyway. Like, flip, that's crazy. Like, that's just not true, right? But it does show you how some of these frames have a hugely distorting effect on the way that we see the world. And obviously, this is bipartisan too. Think of the Republicans and like voter fraud, exact same thing, right? Millions of people will tell you that there was enormous voter fraud in the last election. This is utter bullshit. Every legitimate person that's looked at this and every legitimate court have called it one of the cleaner elections we've ever had. But just like the media frame makes millions of people think that they're going to be shot by a police officer, okay, the media frame also makes literally millions of people think that the election was stolen. I mean, that's crazy. It's literally crazy, but, but that's where we are. And do you think Trump should have been removed by social media just after it? And that on a bigger level, a president of a country could be removed for anything that is said? I don't want anyone removed from social media, either by, again, Mark Zuckerberg or Joe Biden. I think the historical record shows that it doesn't work. I think it also feeds that sort of resentment you were describing. The best thing we can do for Trump right now is to try to censor him. You know, because that will both feed his own craziness and also the craziness of his followers. Look, I'm just I'm just putting my cards on the table. I think Trump was a horrible president for a thousand different reasons. The major one being just his absolute demonization, the way that he spoke about other human beings in ways that no decent parent would allow their kid to speak. No decent teacher would allow their student to speak. Trump is poison. And if you don't want that poison to return, don't censor him. Censoring him gives him power. Don't do it. Don't do it. I understand the impulse. I really do because of how much I loathe him. But I also understand how it boomerangs. And that would be the best way to mobilize him and, and a lot of bad actors that follow him. Since you're so passionate about education and free speech, you also have some opinions about homeschooling. Do you think homeschooling should be done more? It's a way to help critically thinking individuals? Well, it's funny. I think homeschooling is the most important thing happening in education that we know the least about. And the reason is, is it's so lightly regulated. And I think that is a problem. I think we should know much more about it than we do. And the example I often give is, I, I'm sure in, in Europe, it's the same thing. Every year you have to get your car inspected. Right? Yeah. And the reason for this is we share a road, right? And if there's some big problem with your car, that's going to affect other cars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even though you don't like it, you do it, right? Because inevitably the mechanic finds something wrong, which may not be wrong, but you have to pay for and correct. This is just part of it, right? Well, there are states in the United States, obviously it's state by state because that's how America works, but there are states in the United States where you have to register your car, but you don't, your homeschooling is not regulated at all. That is, nobody tests your kid. Nobody looks at the curriculum you're providing your kid. To me, this makes no sense. I do believe people should have the right to do it, but I absolutely think it should be regulated by the state in the same way that your car is, because we share the road, i.e. the democracy. 
You know, we do really share the road. So I'm not denying people the right to do that, but I think the rest of us also have a right to check in on them and see what they're teaching and how well. Do you mean the compass of the road, the moral compass of the road, ethical the content compass of, of the road, it, right? the content of like, it, okay. You know, like, I mean, everyone should learn long division, right? It's a useful skill. And if you're not teaching it to your kids, somebody else should. Like, you do have a right to homeschool your kid. You don't have a right to keep your kids shrouded in ignorance. And you have the same stance about sex education then, that that should also be something that should be regulated more and be more? Well, 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 this, this is a different, it's a very different subject. It's not long division, you know. And one of the points I make in my sex ed book is that school and sex don't play very well either. My sex ed book is very short. And the reason is there's been so little sex ed, you know, because it's so controversial. And, you know, my book is just about the sex ed that happens in school. And I think it's really important to point out that education happens beyond school. Like there's 7 billion people on the planet, except for people that are highly, highly, uh, you know, mentally handicapped. Everyone gets a sex ed. Well, right? in, the, in, in the past, it was partly to the religion or community work or other institutions. I feel so much is expected from education right now. Take yes. over the patent, take over teaching the values, all these things that there's a lot of expectations from a teacher. There, and a there, there is. And one of my one of my mentors, David Tayak, he had this great comment. He said, when society gets an itch, school has to scratch it. So it's like, oh, God, the kids are drinking, anti-alcohol education. Oh, God, the kids are doing drugs, anti-drug education. Ah, oh, they're polluting, environmental education. Ah, oh, they're having sex, sex education. And I think you're right. I mean, that puts unrealistic expectations on the schools. And I think sex ed is a really good example of that. You know, at least state-sponsored schools, we have to narrow our expectations of what sex ed can do in that context because we disagree so, so fundamentally. They're creating any sort of consensus on what sex ed should be, especially as we become more globalized and more diverse. When I was doing that book, you know, I, I read the globalization literature and I got pretty impatient with it because globalization is generally framed as liberalization, mm-hmm. like cosmopolitanism, right? It's going to make us all more tolerant. Oh, no. If globalization means the rapid movement of people and ideas across borders, it often has the opposite effect because suddenly your neighbor is somebody from a totally different country and a totally different religion. And you know what? They're going to have different ideas about sex than you because sex is so deeply tied to our understandings of ourselves as human beings. So, you know, private schools is different, right? But if you're talking about state-sponsored schools, it's just so hard to create a consensus on it. I think the best sex ed is the stuff that comes in on people's phones. Like somebody in school says to you, oh, you can't get pregnant the first time, or, you know, you can't get pregnant when you have mm-hmm. your period. And instead of asking another ignorant teenager, you text like the state health department and they text you back. You know what? That's sex ed, what I just described. That's sex ed. But of course, it's individuated right? It's not part of a shared curriculum. And I think that's probably the most promising form of it. Yeah. If people want to check out more about your books about sex ed and freedom of speech and articles that you write, where can they check out more about all your stuff? Just go to the University of Pennsylvania and Jonathan Zimmerman. You'll see my webpage and it's got all my books. Is that anything that you see as someone who studied history and an advocate of freedom of speech that you think if you want to protect freedom of speech, constructive dialogue, we should start focusing on this element or bring this more into the limelight? Well, what I tried to do in my book with Signe, who, by the way, is a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist, the book is Mm -hmm. illustrated, is I tried to bring into the limelight the radical roots of free speech, which I think a lot of my own students on the left have forgotten. 
So every great warrior for this thing called social justice in American history was a free speech zealot. Mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Susan B. Anthony, right? They had to be because speech was all they had, right? If you took away Frederick Douglass's freedom of speech, he couldn't critique slavery. And that's why he called it like the great moral renovator of society. Douglass knew all this, you know? You start shutting people down, they won't be able to critique the oppression that's around them. So, you know, I'm a proud member of the left, and my commitment to free speech is part of that membership. And unfortunately, in my view, free speech, especially at the elite universities in America, has been like caricatured as a conservative thing. Like, I'm a, I'm a lefty. I mean, my father was in the Peace Corps. I was in the Peace Corps. I have a PhD. I'm Jewish. I'm like a cartoon of a left-wing guy. It's just that my commitment to free speech, I see as part and parcel of that. There's no tension there, none at all, right? Free speech lies at the heart of the lefty version, because if you take away free speech, we won't be able to make our case. And that's why, again, all these great warriors for freedom and justice, right? We've got to remember that they were committed to free speech. We can't lose that or forget that. Amen. Thanks for so much for supporting me in my mission of freedom of speech and open debate. Even if people have differences, they can speak their mind. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm totally looking forward to see more <laughs> books, debates, and open uh, dialogues from you, John. Thanks for being a guest this on the is, podcast. This has, been, this has been really fun. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.